Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. It seems to me that silence like that is hard to come by in this day and age. It's such a good thing to be quiet before the Lord, and thank you for the reminder, Steve, to point us in the right direction. Uh, it silences at a premium sometimes, and uh, it's a good thing to do with the people of God. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 11, and we are really in the home stretch here. Jesus and his disciples have entered Jerusalem now, and in Mark's Gospel, they will not leave again until Jesus hangs on that cross and is buried. So we are in Jerusalem, and if you are following along closely, uh, when we start today, we're going to start at verse 27 of chapter 11. You'll notice that we skipped over a big chunk of chapter 11, and the reason for that is we're going to save the triumphal entry for Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Good Friday, and so we enter Jerusalem along with Jesus, so to speak. And so we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 11, starting in verse 27. In the summer of 1994, a Korean air jet plane, as it was coming into land, it skidded across a a rain-soaked runway and slammed into a safety barricade. And no sooner had the 160 passengers on board evacuated to safety just in the nick of time that the aircraft exploded into flames. And the obvious question is, what was the cause of this accident? Well, news reports later would confirm that it was actually the co-pilot and the pilot who had gotten into a fistfight in the cockpit. A fistfight over who was in control of the landing gear that caused the plane to crash. Not knowing who's in charge can be dangerous. Clearly, it's dangerous when you're landing an airplane, but it's also dangerous in our Christian life as well. As Christians, it's important that we be reminded and remind one another, especially in this day and age when issues of authority are at a premium. We're trying to figure that out, and the culture around us is screaming their suggestions at what should be our authority. It's important that we remind ourselves that we are not the authority in this life. We're not the authority, and the sooner we, ha- we stop fighting with God for that supreme role, the sooner we can take care of the responsibilities that he's actually entrusted to us. We're less confused. That we can do what he's actually called us to do. And in this passage we're looking at today, we're going to see kind of a call and response. We're going to see Jesus before the religious leaders of the day declaring his authority, his supremacy, and the supremacy of him who sent Christ. And then we're going to see a response. So if God is this authoritative, if he has no equal, if he is this authoritative in our lives, what does he expect from us as believers? So the authority and then our responsibility as Christians. So I'll invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning as we dive into Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from man? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, 
and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is God's word. Please be seated. In the closing verses of chapter 11 here, this little segment, Mark calls us to recognize afresh the authority of our Lord, that he is the supreme authority. We're told in verse 27 that that while he's walking in the temple courts, Jesus is approached by the whole crooked gang. You know, the whole gang is there. We've got the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, these representatives of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the high court in Judaism at the time. They'd been sent from the council to confront Jesus. They were kind of the self-appointed religious watchdogs, if you will. And they, confer- they converge upon Jesus with a single mission. As we've seen previously in Mark's gospel, they want to expose him as a fraud publicly. It would be even better. And they want to discredit him as, as a liar. And so they come with these two loaded questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? And we might think in the immediate context, we haven't talked about it today, but we'll return to it, as I said, on Palm Sunday. We might think that what they're referring to is the triumphal entry, where people are waving branches and saying, Hosanna in the highest. Or they could be referring to what happened immediately after that. He entered the temple, and he flipped over tables, and he cleansed the temple. So they could be saying, what authority gives you the right to do these things in the house of God? But I don't think it's a stretch to assume that they might actually be referring to his ministry as a whole. We know this far in Mark that they've always been after him. They don't like what they see. They don't like his teachings. They don't like that he's driving out demons. They don't like that he's healing. They don't like that he claims he can forgive sins. And so he's claiming authority. And they come along and say, what gives you authority? What is the nature and the source of your authority? You know, if, we, if we didn't know any better, and we're familiar with this group already, but if we didn't know any better, we could assume, we could give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that these are legitimate worries. They were in charge of taking care of Judaism at the time, the people. And so this new guy comes on the scene, scene teaching new things. And they want to know, you know what, what, what gives you the right? What are your credentials? If you went home this afternoon and someone came knocking at your door at home and said, let us in, I just want to take a look around. I want to go through your drawers. I want to go through your cabinets. You might say, by what authority do you want to come into my house and look around? If the person responds, I'm just curious, you would probably slam the door in their face. But if they say, the police sent me, and here's the warrant I have, we best get out of their way. They come with authority that affords them that privilege. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders here in this passage, they want to know by what authority Jesus is doing all these things. He's saying all these things. He's performing these actions. They they are saying, show us your credentials. Show us the warrant. Show us the permission that you've been given. Because we know it didn't come from us. And we're the watchdogs. So where did you get it from? 
And Jesus responds, well, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. You know, a question for a question was common in rabbinic dialogue. But this is interesting because Jesus bases his answer on theirs. If you answer me, I'll answer you where I get my authority. No problem. He says, John the Baptist. You remember him? You remember him. His, his baptism, his teachings, his ministry. Was it from God or from man? Was he a prophet of God or was he just some guy? Did he carry God's authority or was he just shuffling man's opinion around? Was he a fraud? We know because we've read the passage that Jesus here has backed them into a corner. He's backed them into a corner. They're, they're trapped. And they, they bring, they pull in ranks to discuss with themselves before they offer a response because they see the writing on the wall. They see that they're in trouble. They want to claim, obviously, that John was just from men. They want to say, he's just a guy. He was saying crazy things out in the wilderness. Look how he dressed. Look what he was eating. They want to discredit him and say he's just some man. Because when they say that, it means that all he taught was just human opinion and not God's commands, right? But if they do that, the text tells us that they'd lose popularity points with the public. Because everyone seemed to be convinced that John was actually sent from God. And for them to stand there and say, he's just a man, the crowds would be like, whoa, I thought you were our religious representatives. The consensus is that he was sent from God, and you're disagreeing. And so they, they can't say that, and Mark points out in verse 32, because they feared the people. They were scared of their constituents. They were scared of the people that they served. Now, that's option one. But on the other hand, they could say from heaven. John was sent from God. But they really can't, because they would also incriminate themselves then. As they point out, if they say, yeah, John was from heaven, he was a messenger from God, he bore God's message, he bore God's authority, Jesus would say, then why didn't you listen to him? He came saying, be baptized and repent, and they said, this guy is a quack. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So if they say he's from heaven, they're discrediting themselves in front of the people again. And if they said that John was God's messenger, they'd also have to affirm everything he taught. Because in the Old Testament, a prophet sent from God was tested by the accuracy of what they said. If anything was off, They were killed. That's how highly God held his word. You cannot be 80% right and be a prophet of God. And so if they're going to say that John is from God, then they had to affirm that everything he said, including in Mark chapter 1, we have John coming along, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then in John's gospel. He adds to this in John chapter 1 verse 29 and following. It says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who had comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Spirit of God. So you see how they're trapped. If they say John was from heaven, then they have to affirm all of that. And they're trapped. If they say we validate John's message as from heaven, they ipso facto affirm Jesus' message from heaven. And so they're between a rock and a hard place. And the crowds are listening in. They've posed the question. Jesus says, I'll answer the question. Answer this simple question. Where's John from? And they say, we have to plead ignorance. We're trapped. So they say, we don't know. And because the terms of his deal weren't met, Jesus simply says, okay, 
then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority. I'm not going to tell you. And while in this text we find Jesus refusing to explicitly reveal the nature and source of his authority to these religious leaders, readers and hearers of Mark at this point in the gospel, we know exactly where he gets his authority. Not only because of his relationship with John, but, but it's been built, the case has been built all the way through the pages of Mark's gospel. As we've heard already, John knew he carried the authority of God. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even when he came on the scene, he was preparing the way for the Lord. So he knew that John, or that Jesus carried God's authority. We've seen that the demons also, they knew that Jesus carried God's authority as well. In chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus comes up to the, a demon-possessed man and, and it squeals at him. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So they knew exactly the authority that this man wielded as well. And interesting, that the people knew that Jesus knew that he carried the authority of God. You remember in chapter 2, the famous scene where there's a paralytic being lowered down before Jesus. And you remember the first thing Jesus does, he says, your sins are forgiven. And we're told in chapter 2 that the teachers of the law, they're there and they hear this and they think to themselves, they don't say it out loud, they think to themselves, what do you, who does he think he is? Nobody has the authority to forgive sins except God. Only God does. And we're told in the text that Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he responds by healing the man as well, so that, quote, they may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So they're right. Only God has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus says, you're right. Absolutely. Only God has authority to forgive sins. By the way, I'm God. So I have that authority. I carry it with me in this body. And so all on earth we see that Jesus wielded the power and the authority of him who sent him, the God of heaven and earth, the God who created all things, and, and who has authority over, over all things except the one who created all things. And Jesus carried that as well. Immediately before his ascension to heaven, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus speaking to his disciples, right before he goes back to the Father, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he walks this earth with authority. He leaves this earth with authority. And then even as we are sitting here this morning, Jesus continues to have all authority. Listen to this passage from Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's praying for them. But listen to his prayer for those believers. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's a pretty comprehensive statement of the current authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is under his feet. He is the name above every name. So Jesus walked this earth in authority, he ascended in authority, and right now he reigns and will reign forevermore with unmatched, unequaled authority. And standing in front of these religious leaders in Mark chapter 11, Jesus has all authority, and they're questioning him on it. Where do you get this authority? What gives you the right? And he's standing there with all the authority in all of creation because he created it. He is from God. 
Now, these religious leaders, looking into the face of the ultimate authority, they reject it. They say, no. But we haven't. As believers today, we have not rejected this. We will recognize his authority. We understand that he's in charge. And we strive to submit to him. Imperfectly, by his power, but we strive to learn how to submit to him by submitting to his word, by singing his praises like we did this morning. We are learning to submit to him, to declare him as the authority in our lives that he deserves to be labeled. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, this is exactly what Paul admonishes believers to do. He asks a rhetorical question in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, that God sent this Holy Spirit to you that lives within you. All authority lives within you. So what, he says? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We are not our own. Not only is he our authority, but he has purchased us with a price, and so we submit to that authority. Because God is the supreme authority, we as believers are obligated, obliged, and should be overjoyed to give him everything that we are, our whole selves. And I know in many ways I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, you are believers who have said, yes, Lord, you are the authority in my life. I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to walk with me during this life. I need you to renovate me constantly by the power of your spirit. I want to submit to that. It's a learning curve, isn't it? We learn to submit to the Holy Spirit. And that's why we need the body of Christ to remind us, to spur one another on, to encourage us when we blow it. For people to come alongside and say, no, remember the authority. We're going after this. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we together pull one another along toward Christ-likeness by his power. So what might it look like specifically for us to respond to this level of authority over us in our lives? Well, I think the parable that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 12, it can set us in the right direction. And it helps us to understand the responsibility that disciples have in response to that authority. We know that God's in charge, and so we want to ask the question, okay, so what does he expect from us? If he is the ultimate authority, what is the expectation upon us as his subordinates? Well, as we read, the parable involves a man who builds a beautiful vineyard. And it won't surprise you to learn that the man represents God. And the vineyard, as is the case throughout Scripture, often pictures Israel. So God has created, called to himself, a vineyard, his nation of Israel, his people. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, which is the passage, if you go back, that Jesus is pulling from in this parable, Isaiah chapter 5, it says exactly that. It says in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. So we don't have to guess. So we have here God the Father and his vineyard, Israel. Now the parable continues. The man, God, rents his vineyard to farmers who will work it for him. And these tenant farmers represent the leaders of Israel. They represent the leaders of Israel, like the ones who are standing before him in the temple courts questioning him. This is who it is. And we say, how do you know that? Well, they didn't miss that point. In verse 12 of our passage, it says that they, the religious leaders, looked for a way to arrest him. Why? Because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So you know, so that God has this vineyard, the nation of Israel, and he has entrusted it to the religious leaders to shepherd his people while he's on this, quote-unquote, journey in the parable. So God creates this beautiful vineyard, entrusts it to others, and at harvest time, we're told, when the owner expects to collect a return on his investment, remember, he still owns the vineyard, so now he sends servants to collect his rent, to collect what he's owed from his land. And these servants are his prophets which for centuries he has sent over and over again. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. God sent people to check on his property, his vineyard, the nation of Israel. And just like in the parable, in the real world, 
in the history of Israel, they often mistreated, ignored, or killed God's servants, the ones he sent to collect, the ones he sent to check on his nation. And finally, in this parable, we come to the last one he has to send. He had one left to send to his vineyard, a son, whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Surely, he saved them for last. Notice that as well. It's not, it's not Muhammad, it's not Joseph Smith, the last one he sends. He sent all of these prophets, they killed them, they mistreated them, they ignored them. Last of all, my last resort, I'm sending my son. Surely, they will not reject the authority that is embodied in my son as he comes in my stead. Surely, they will treat him as better than they've treated the other servants. And at this point, I think there's no mistaking who this son represents in the parable, right? I think we know who that is. Even readers of Mark know who that is. Remember the baptism? Jesus comes up out of the water, the voice from the clouds, from heaven says, this is my son. Fast forward to chapter 9, transfiguration, top of the mountain, the voice from the whirlwind, from the storm, this is my son. And here we have the owner of the vineyard sending his son, the one he loved, to his people, to his vineyard, and to confront these tenant farmers. Now, in the parable, the farmers, they see this son coming, and they perhaps assume that since the son is coming, maybe the owner's dead. And so that the son is coming to collect his inheritance. And they think to themselves, perfect. Let's kill this son. Then we can just move in. We can just claim this vineyard for ourselves. If the son's gone, the owner's gone, then it's, it's all up for grabs. And so they do just that. They kill the son of the owner, and then, in dishonor, they dump his body over the wall. And Jesus concludes this parable by asking the rhetorical question, what do you think the owner's going to do to these tenant farmers? The owner, who's very, very, very much alive, what do you think he's going to do when he finds out what they did to his son? These tenant farmers who he entrusted with his precious vineyard. Verse 9 tells us, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The consequences are extreme because to reject the authority of the son is to reject the authority of the owner, of he who sent him. So those who were entrusted with the man's vineyard, they, they blew it. Right? These tenant farmers, they, they blew it. The leaders of Israel had, had mishandled God's precious people. And the, the amazing thing is, is the son is standing before those tenant farmers right there in the courtyard of the temple. He's telling them this parable about themselves and about him. The ten farmers, the leaders of Israel, they had ignored, mistreated, or killed the prophets. And they were currently in the process of doing the same to his son. They were currently in the process of finding a way to arrest him, to eventually have him crucified. Because of their unfaithfulness, God's leaders in Israel would be removed for a season and replaced with Gentile leaders. You're not doing a good job, we'll take it from you. We'll give it to the church. Interestingly, not long after this, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and it was taken away from them. But you and I, we want to learn from their negative example, right? They, they saw the authority before them. They saw this unmatched authority and they rejected it. And the tenant farmers, they saw the authority and they, they spat on it by killing the son. But you and I, we want to learn from their negative example. We, we agree that he is our authority. So what does God expect from us in response to that authority? Well, I think we find a hint in verse 2 of chapter 12. Verse 2 of chapter 12, it says this of the parable. 
At harvest time, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So right there, we see the expectation on these tenant farmers. The expectation of the owner on these people is that the people he entrusted with his property would work it and produce fruit. They're they're to be productive. That's the expectation. I'm giving you this to work in my stead. You don't own it. I own it. You get to have it, but you better be productive. You better produce fruit with what I've given you. They were to be productive stewards of what they had been given, what they were entrusted with. And I want to argue this morning that the same is true with us today. The same is true with us. You and I, as we submit to God's authority, we are to work the land, so to speak, and be fruitful. We're to work the land and be fruitful. We're to steward well what he has entrusted to us. What God owns, he he gives to us to steward, to use for the purposes he has called us to use them. And we could create a long list of things that God has given us to steward. We're a blessed people. He's given us families and communities, finances and jobs and friends and education and freedom. The list goes on and on and on. Every single one of those, we could take and flesh out what it would look like to steward those things well. But I want to go to a place that we can all, as believers, relate to. This is an issue of stewardship for us, and that is in the issue of spiritual gifts. If you are a believer, you have been endowed with a spirit-dwelt ability to serve him and serve his people. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 says, We have different gifts, speaking to the church, according to the grace given to each of us. So if you're a believer here today, whether you know it or not, the, the, God has given you the Holy Spirit that lives in you, and that Holy Spirit manifests itself in your life in different ways to serve his body. That's why it's been given. You have been entrusted with a spiritually endowed ability for the building up of the body of Christ. It's for service for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And God entrusts us with those gifts, and he expects productivity. He expects faithfulness. He doesn't expect us to take the gifts and hoard them and shine them and keep them on our shelf and and have them as trophies of our abilities. We are to use them. That's the whole purpose is that they are useful. He expects fruitfulness. He gives us opportunities to serve, and we are to step into those opportunities knowing that, that he can and will gift us to serve in those capacities. And from my point of view, as an outsider, I've been here six months now, I want to say that this church, in my opinion, does this extremely well. Extremely well. I think this church is full of people that seek to serve God with every opportunity they've been given. Um, Those of you who were at the annual meeting about a month ago, uh, you'll have heard what I'm I'm about to say, or at least parts of it. Um, But this church, you know, up close, as I've been here for six months, is comprised of many, many people who are, are faithfully being productive in serving. And you should be commended for that. Not all churches are like this, and sometimes it takes someone with a fresh perspective to come in and point that out, because we get so used to our surroundings. Right? You got fish and water. Can't describe water, but someone coming in from the outside, I want to affirm you that you are a serving group of people. And for those of you who may be new here, you need to know that you are in the midst of a group of people who are dedicating themselves to serve God and be good stewards of the gifts that God has given them for his glory. As was mentioned, we had a, a meeting yesterday morning for those involved in music ministry. There's a couple dozen people on a Saturday morning giving their time, energy, and talents to hone their understanding of corporate worship, to hone their abilities to serve us well from this platform. I mean, that should be commended. That should not go without recognition. That is them stewarding the gifts that God has given to build up the body of Christ. And there are many, many that give their time and energy to do that. Think of the children's ministry. We can't say thank you because they're not in here. 
They're out there with our kids. They're pouring into our kids, giving time. They sacrifice time in here to be out with our kids, teaching them, shaping them, spending time with them, giving of their time, energy, gifts, the opportunities that they've been given to serve us. They need to be commended for that. And there are so many people. It's not just on Sunday morning either. Have you ever been to Treehouse? People serving our kids. And most of the kids at Treehouse aren't even from our church. It's an evangelistic opportunity. People from our church see the need and they want to step in and say, I want to be used. I want to be a good steward of the gifts God has given me in the corner of the vineyard he's entrusted to me. I haven't been through one yet, but I hear VBS is very much the same thing. Vacation Bible School in the summer. Hands on, all hands on deck from the church. People flocking to serve in that capacity. They need to be commended. You as a church are very, very good at this. All who serve in the ESL ministries on a Monday morning. People from our church coming to serve a very vulnerable group of people and help them acclimatize to life in Canada. What a selfless act. And I know they're not doing it for rewards. They're doing it because God has given them the opportunity and the ability to do that. All who serve in the kitchen to facilitate the meals we have together as people. I'm not allowed to name names on this one. I've been forbidden. He'll walk out from over there. If I I do that. And it's not just him. There's a team that are in there washing dishes. Not because they're spiritually gifted at washing dishes. Because they saw a need and they said, Lord, I can serve this body by going in there and getting my hands wet and scrubbing those pans and serving food to facilitate something greater. We have a beautiful building, but it requires upkeep. It requires attention. It requires updates. And, And there's people here that give up their time to do that. They're here in the morning, checking in on people, contractors who are here. The deacons who oversee all of that. And I will take any opportunity to sing the praise of the elders of this church. You have inherited, or you've been blessed with, a group of godly men who labor in praying for this congregation and seeking God's wisdom in leading this congregation. If you've never served it as an elder, you may not know the burden it is to serve in that position. And these men give of themselves. They put themselves in the crosshairs of the enemy as elders of this church because they want to be good stewards. They want to be used by God for his glory. Hospitality. Having one another in our homes, taking one another out for dinner, food for life on Wednesday morning, ushers, welcome crew, sound people. There are so many. I could go on and on. I'm running out of time. You can go on and on and on with the people in this church that are seeking ways to serve this body, to do exactly what we're called to here because of the authority of God, because of what he's done in their life. They say, Lord, use me. Show me where the needs are. I'll step into it. I'll trust that you'll equip me to do whatever you're calling me to do. That is faithfulness. And there's one I want to point out as we conclude this section of bragging on you to you. I want to point out one that is probably the most unsung, the most hidden, the most um, unacclaimed group of people that serve us in the most important possible way in this church. And that is those of you who suffer in prayer for this church. All that we do here, all those ministries that I talked about, mean nothing if it is not God's power working through us. If he is not blessed, if we have not sought him in prayer, they mean nothing. And I know for a fact that there is a huge group of people in this church that daily labor in prayer for the leadership, for the ministries, for the children, for you as a congregation, and for the community around us. I get the texts. I get the emails. I get the phone calls. How can I pray? How can I pray? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So there's lots of you that pray all the time and don't call me. I wouldn't mind a call so I can celebrate more and brag about you from up here. Um, 
But what a an act of stewardship to pray for this church. So I want to commend you publicly, even though no one probably will ever know who you are, the people who labor to pray for Oak Ridge Bible Chapel and the ministries here and the leadership and the, the people in these chairs uh, need to be commended. So I'll be honest. You know, There were several times this week where I'm studying this passage for this morning, and I find myself smiling and just thanking the Lord that he sent me to a church, a group of people that are diligent and are intentional and want to roll up their sleeves and steward God's blessings for his glory. It is a joy to be here. It is a joy to serve you and serve alongside you as we spur one another on to loving good deeds, serving him, trying to steward what he's given us for his glory. You are a church that is working hard to farm the corner of God's vineyard in which we've been placed. And so I just want you to feel affirmed as we close this morning. I want you to feel affirmed. Um, I want you to be encouraged. And for those of you who are hearing this and say, you know what, I don't really serve that much. I want you to feel encouraged to get involved. Because as you can tell, you'll have a lot of company. As you step out and say, what can I do? You will have a lot of people there that are serving alongside you. And sometimes we get this a little backwards. We say, okay, God, how have you gifted me? I've got to figure that out before I can start serving. Well, I don't know if I'm gifted this way. If I find that out, then I'll serve in that capacity. That's the, we get that backwards. That's the cart before the horse. Well, something you might want to ask yourself in, in trying to figure out how I can serve, how I can be a good steward, is ask yourself as I look around this church, what are the needs that God is placing on my heart? Where do I see the greatest need? And then I'll talk to the leadership and say, am I imagining things? Is this, a, is this an actual need? And if it is, you might say, I'm not gifted to do that. I would say, step out in faith. Jump into that need and watch how God, by the Spirit living in you, manifests abilities to meet that very need. And you will join the ranks of a faithful group of people that I am privileged to serve alongside. So be encouraged, and let's continue to be faithful and fruitful for His glory. Amen? The closing song we're going to sing today, I'll ask the music team to come up now, is, is just a declaration of God's authority. It all starts there, right? We start with his authority. We serve him because he's in charge. He's in charge of the landing gear. He's in charge of the the landing controls. We serve him out of gratefulness and out of reverence because of who he is and what he's accomplished. And so we're going to declare that together as we close today. But before we do that, let's pray together and ask God's continued blessing on this body of Christ. Father, I, I personally thank you for the faithfulness of so many of your saints in this church. Saints who, whether they realize it or not, are are submitting to your authority, serving you because of what you've done for them, and they just want to be faithful. They want to be good stewards of the, the manifold blessings that you've poured out on them and the gifts that you've bestowed in them. Father, continue to shape us as a church into a church that is characterized by service, sacrifice, stewardship. We want so badly as a church and individual Christians that when that day comes that Steve talked about, that he reminded us of, when that day comes, we will hear those words from your lips, well done, my good and faithful servant. We want that for our church. We want that for our families. We want that for us as individuals. And so would you, by the power of your spirit, do a good work in us so that that may be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.